African-American literature has a rich tradition of both using and discarding the classics. Today, the latter tradition is better known. My talk explores a different pole on that creative continuum. Contemporary poets, myself included, for whom classical authors are key touchstones and interlocutors. I focus on several contemporary poems about peace and violence that allude to Homer's epics in meaningful ways, including Yusuf Komunyaka's Latitudes, Rowan Ricardo Phillips's Even Homer Nods, and my own Black Lives Matter poem, Dear Ilium. I decided to talk about these particular poems because many of you have read Homer's epics in your humanities core at Columbia. My central argument tonight is that exploring the different ways these poems are in sustained conversation with the classics tells us something about how contemporary authors are imagining Black selfhood, American history, and what it feels like to belong and means to belong to a species and nation and on this planet. Illusions. Illusions are subtle references, often to things outside the ordinary world of a piece of writing. They are typically brief, and they're designed to call something to mind without mentioning it directly or explicitly. Where do they come from? What inspires them? Some artists, such as Ralph Ellison, begin writing novels with a particular cache of references in mind, but the initial ideas don't always work out. For example, at one point during the writing of his novel Invisible Man, Ellison tried on and then rejected an allusion to Othello because a parallel between Shakespeare's tragic hero and his own unnamed protagonist rung untrue for his fictional character. At other times, art, at other times for artists, this subtle reference seems to just spring and come up from the universe, a mere suggestion of possibility that we pluck from the stream of words and images that populate our lives. In my poem, Dear Ilium, the melodically winsome chorus of rumors song Rascal is what put a particular anti-police slogan in my mind. Dear Ilium is a poem that I wrote quickly while I was revising my most recent book for publication. It was during the apex of the large scale Black Lives Matter protests here in the US. Some of the early manuscript reviewers didn't see what I was trying to say about race, racism and medicine. So I decided to try to clarify those themes by editing some poems and rearranging the poem's order. Dear Ilium began and stayed a letter to that ancient city, which made emotional sense because it too was the site of a protracted battle. Back in 2020, people kept worrying about the possibility of some kind of race war. But from my perspective, there was already a long war. I call anti-Black racism laying siege to people and communities I love, often in quiet and devastating ways. Not just via spectacular anti-Black violence, such as police killings of unarmed suspects, such as George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. From the beginning, I meant to put Homer's old urban center, now a center of myth, in a slow letterly exchange with a single contemporary protester. A person, in my mind, a fictionalized version of myself, who stands in league with other protesters in a long military-style struggle, but who also questions the efficacy of both her own individual work and their collective work in some unnamed American city by an ocean. Dear Ilium, some of those battles were pointless. I opened the tent flaps and peered out at the world. The bird learned to copy so many sounds. Its entrails were clogged with bright bits of plastic. What was our strategy again? And why did the wind wince as it skirted the brilliant corners downtown? Some of those battles were jointless, footless, feckless. Yet I polished the armor and sat on the ground, 
and shot no sheriffs and smoked no spliffs and sang songs that applied no pressure when we ran out of bandages. But some of those battles were spotless. The sign said, fuck 12, the second sticked past. The thoughtless old ships rusted in the bay. We lost, we won, we painted new ships and faces on plywood and the birds wheeled and sang. What's a victory? What's a garden? We burned some cities. We shattered some glass. In my poem, I wasn't trying to suggest a direct parallel with the Iliad, but rather to convey something about scale and importance. I don't remember Troy being personified in Homer's poem, but in my poem, a personified city was who I wanted to write to, for perspective maybe on how to make sense of the conflict. As one witness to history reaching out to another, hoping maybe for wisdom about what such battles leave in their wake, including burnt buildings, shattered glass, and art. In this case, ships and faces painted on plywood, and perhaps the poem itself. Maybe you were also struck by all the bird augury in the Iliad, where everyone, the gods included, looked to birds as omens of good or ill luck in upcoming battles between the Trojans and the Achaeans. That element of my extended illusion or series of illusions might have jumped out at you, but some of the things I had in mind with the birds in my poem won't be obvious to a reader who doesn't know my personal backstory. I'm gonna share three things from my own life that were personally enmeshed in the making of this poem because I suspect they'll help us think about how illusions and, and authorial intent work in poems more generally. One thing I could not get out of my mind was the African-American bird watcher Christian Cooper's recent run-in with the young white woman in Central Park's Ramble. The woman, also named Cooper, who refused to leash her dog to protect the ground nesting birds in that protected park zone, and then when chastised for her dereliction, called the police and claimed with play-acted hysteria that a black man was threatening her. That incident gave rise to the hashtag birding while black. Personal backstory number two is a series of photographs I saw at a lecture illustrating Rob Nixon's concept of slow violence. They were photographs of dead birds on tiny islands and rock outcroppings near the Pacific Ocean gyres that consolidate plastic waste in huge floating spirals. All of the dead birds had eaten plastic. Their skeletons had bright undigested plastic, undigested plastic pieces nestled in their rib cages. Personal backstory number three. Many years ago, I got to hear the Dalai Lama speak at Stanford. In the Q&A period, someone asked him how he prayed, about what he did when he prayed. He replied that he thought about the suffering of birds. Then he told a story about how birds were suffering because of the scourge of avian flu, and that our response when they fell ill was to slaughter them en masse. Since that talk, the suffering of birds, and also what it points out about the limits of human imagination and compassion, is often on my mind. It feels differently poignant during a human pandemic, especially back before we had a viable COVID-19 vaccine, when I was writing the Dear Ilium poem. Even when I am not feeling particularly optimistic about America's racial divisions, I still see possibilities in art. And one of the things that seems possible in this medium is changing the way we look at who we are and how we might understand the shared ground of what it is to be human. And maybe because of a photograph or because of a poem, we might even pay regular attention to the suffering of birds, if not as augurs for of our own futures, then because we can help understand and because we can understand and relate to suffering 
and because we actually do have some power to help. In the Iliad, there is the mundanity of war and its machinery, particularly the catalog of the ships, which I read for the first time back in middle school and I thought would never ever end. Um, Homer kept saying name after name after name in that chapter. And Black Lives Matter protesters kept chanting, say their names to keep the victims of police violence in our collective memory. What do we do with the dead? When Hector is about to die in the Iliad, he uses his last breaths to beg his enemy Achilles to, turn, to return his body to his family. Quote, here then, as the Trojan charged, Achilles drove his point straight through the tender neck, but did not cut the windpipe, leaving Hector able to speak and respond. He fell aside into the dust, and Prince Achilles now exulted. Hector, had you thought that you could kill Patroclus and be safe? Hector, barely whispering, replied, I beg you by your soul and by your parents, do not let the dogs feed on me in your encampment by the ships. Accept the bronze and gold my father will provide as gifts for my father and her ladyship, my mother. Let them have my body back so that our men and women may accord me decency of fire when I am dead, end quote. That passage is from book 23 of the Iliad, the Battle of Achilles and Hector, as translated by Robert Fitzgerald. This dying request to ransom the body of the almost slain so his family can mourn with their traditional funeral rituals and do him honor is a request for dignity. And I think the request itself confers a kind of dignity on its speaker who looks to his legacy, but is also thinking about the suffering of his loved ones and the way and the one way he might in some measure mitigate it. The first dead body in my poem, Dear Ilium, belongs to a bird a bird that died because of human environmental irresponsibility because it swallowed the plastic we threw away. We are responsible for that small death. That bird is our auger. We need no other, though other birds continue to wheel and sing over my poem scenes of battle and detente. In the Iliad, there's a lot of sitting in tents on the ground and sometimes sulking in tents because of egotism or cowardice and a lot of anger and inspiration and doubt, along with the gleaming armor and flashing swords and sparkling lances. What must the city itself have thought of all of that? What does it feel like to be a battleground? The music fans among you maybe also caught the jazz and reggae references in my poem to Bob Marley's legend album and to the Thelonious Monk song, Brilliant Corners. Here's what Wikipedia says about the latter, quote, the title track has an unconventional song structure that deviates from both standard song and form and blues structures, as well as from Monk's African-American music roots. Its ternary form employs an eight bar A section followed by a seven bar B section and a modified seven bar A section and features a double time theme in each second chorus and complex rhythmic accents, end quote. Doesn't that kind of musical experimentation and hybridity seem appropriate for a poem that harkens back to ancient Greece and kind of blurs or hybridizes Troy and urban America to make sense of contemporary race relations? Yeah, that was a happy accident. Um, when the song popped into my head, I wasn't thinking about why it was part of the internal soundscape of the poem. I just knew that it fit in. Other aspects of the musical illusions were more conscious. The hunted speaker in Bob Marley's famous song strenuously maintains, I shot the sheriff, but I didn't shoot no deputy. 
that refrain about scope of action and culpability, a shooting that the speaker claims was in self-defense, felt a part of things too. In that moment when we were all scrutinizing the actions and motivations of police officers and Black Lives Matter demonstrators alike, and when we were all trying to make sense of what moral action actually was. It's not directly alluded to in my poem, but elsewhere on Marley's album, a speaker says to an old comrade, do you remember when we used to sit in a government yard in Trenchtown? It's a memory of poverty and dependency on government aid, and also of solidarity and friendship and pleasure and communion. In the glowing firelight of memory over a shared meal of cornmeal porridge cooked over an open fire, it seems possible to believe in human resilience and pleasure and simple acts of care of the good life lived in improbable conditions. In another song on legend, the speaker repeats, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. Get up, stand up, don't give up the fight. And in yet another Marley song called Three Little Birds, the chorus says repeatedly, everything's gonna be all right. Everything's gonna be all right. All of this was my personal sonic background, though only part of that background is a backdrop is legible or obvious in the poem itself. And that's exactly as it should be. Dear Ilium is a poem about drawing on shared cultural history to navigate racism, environmental reckoning, and a summer of civic unrest. But it's also an inward facing poem, the kind of political poem that doubts the efficacy of protest and also the efficacy of protest poems themselves. The songs in the poem shoot no sheriffs, and the speaker and her colleagues run out of bandages to treat the wounds of their fellow demonstrators. The big work I was trying to accomplish was to make legible the terms and stories which I thought best engage this particular historical moment, because I'm interested in what we accomplish when we share and acknowledge sharing common references and cultural common ground. This, despite the non-trivial ways that kind of cultural sharing has been circumscribed by slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, and their huge aftermath. Often readers are renegades and so are writers. And because of that, our imaginative circles and maybe even our circles of care meaningfully overlap across race and time and geography. So the stories that help us make sense of the present moment are wild sometimes and unpredictable. They don't follow the stereotypical scripts of what we're supposed to know, notice and care about. At the outset of this paper, I said I was gonna talk about black subjectivity and belonging. I've been doing that implicitly, but let me be more explicit about those things now. My mom and my baby sister are members of a collective called the Bioneers that maintains that our current environmental plight is one awful manifestation of a crisis in human consciousness. You might recognize their slogan on pins and bumper stickers, it's all connected. My poetry version of that slogan is we're all connected, which is not the same thing as saying we're all the same, it's saying that we have deeply meaningful cultural common ground on which to build and draw on when we talk about even the things that divide us. We can use those shared symbols and myths and images um, about who and what the enemy is, or pardon me, we can, use those shared sim we can use those shared symbols and myths and images to make ourselves heard by and legible to one another, to relate, to change our minds about who and what the enemy is, and who and what and when to fight, and what a weapon is, and when to put the weapons down, and what to assemble and think about long after battle. Also, how to think about a battle's long reverberations, starting with their reverb in a single human life, a single African-American veteran's life, perhaps. 
Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Yusef Komunyaka's 2012 poem Latitudes uses multiple Homeric allusions to talk about the long aftermath of war. The Vietnam War and its racial and sexual politics is one of Komunyaka's recurring poetic subjects. He served in the United States Army from 1969 to 1970. He was a correspondent and then a managing editor of the Southern Cross Military Journal during the Vietnam War. He earned a bronze star for his journalism and it was dangerous work. Ken Burns' Vietnam War documentary noted that over 200 journalists died in Vietnam. Kumanyaka began writing poetry in 1973, three years after he got back from the war, but he didn't start writing about the war until about 14 years after he came home. Latitudes is written from the perspective of a veteran. It's a retelling of the story of the homecoming of Odysseus, AKA Ulysses, and though we need to understand at least three of the poem's Homeric allusions to make full sense of its action and emotional implications, I'm gonna put it in the air first and then talk about how the illusion, how its illusions work. I've already given a spoiler about the first allusion to the character Odysseus, though the poem's speaker uses the Roman version of the name Ulysses. Um, for those of you who are already familiar with Homer's poetry, see if you can find at least two other classical allusions and latitudes. Um, I'm going to put this on screen and I'm also going to play a recording of Kumanyaka reading it. Latitudes. If I'm not Ulysses, I am his dear, ruthless half-brother. Strap me to the mass so I may endure night sirens singing my birth when water broke into a thousand blossoms in a landlocked town of the South before my name was heard in the womb-shaped world of deep, sonorous waters. Storms ran my ship to the brink, and I wasn't myself in a kingdom of unnamed animals and totem trees but never wish to unsay my vows. From the salt-crusted timbers, I could only raise a battering ram or cross where I learned God is rhythm as far as. If I am Ulysses, made of his words and deeds, I swim with sea cows, Mermaids and a lost season ate oysters and poison berries to approach the idea of death tangled in the lifeline slack on that rolling barrel of a ship. Then come home to more than just the smell of apples, the heavy oars creaking, the same music as of a bed. One of the first things to say about Komunyaka's poem is that the story it retells is the aftermath of war, not the battles of the Iliad, but the long wanderings and difficult homecoming of the Odyssey. We get the first decisive hint of this with his opening salvo about the speaker's name. Then the first things Komunyaka's speaker requests or commands is, strap me to the mast so I may endure night sirens singing my birth. Words which, words which plunge us into the one, one of the most dramatic instances during the 10 years of wandering, years when Odysseus is thwarted repeatedly in his attempts to return home from the battles of Troy. 
In Homer's poem, Odysseus wanted to hear the voice of the sirens, the dangerous creatures who lured sailors to their deaths by enchanted singing, singing which made crews go mad and jump into the water and drown or steer their vessels to shipwreck in, in rock-filled waters. Odysseus commanded his crew to stop their own ears with wax, then to tie him to the mast of the ship and refused to untie him until they had sailed out of earshot of the sirens. The command at the beginning of Kominyaka's poem recalls that brash defiance, that courting of danger, that desire for experience. There's an oblique hint of past marital infidelity when Kuminyaka's speaker asserts, I wasn't myself, but never wished to unsay my vows, alluding to the seven years Homer's heroes spent captured, detained, and enchanted by the songs of Calypso before he broke the nymph's spell, motivated finally by how much he missed his wife Penelope and assisted by the intervention of his patron, the goddess Athena. At the end of Kominyaka's poem, the music is not that of nymphs or sirens. It's not even the music of voices. It's the creaking sound the bed makes during sex between the long separated husband and wife. The speaker's final reflection or observation is that the sound of the bed is the same music as that made by the heavy oars of his ship. Even the act of homecoming and intimate marital connection evokes wandering. Is that a good or a bad thing? Maybe it depends on what we think of the poem's speaker. Also, it's not just any bed making the sounds. In the Odyssey, it's linked to the final private test that enables Penelope to recognize her husband after 20 years apart. 10 he spent fighting at Troy, 10 he spent on his long journey home to Ithaca. The secret Penelope keeps from everyone is the fact that their bed, hidden from view in a locked room, is made from a living olive tree. In Homer's poem, she makes a casual comment about moving the bed and Odysseus tells her such a feat would be impossible. And this is how Penelope recognizes her husband after 20 years apart. In Kominyaka's poem, the allusion to a rooted living bed gives us readers a sense of the passion of the couple's long-awaited and fraught sexual reunion, and also what's at stake, mutual recognition. The poet Stephen Dobbins maintains that the ending of a successful poem surprises us because it catapults us back to its beginning and makes us rethink the whole poem and find in it a unity that we didn't initially perceive. At the end of Kominyaka's poem, because of the subtle allusion to Penelope's key role in Odysseus's homecoming, we realize that the speaker is talking to his long estranged wife. Indeed, we realize that he's been talking to her all along, and that this whole poem is about the tangle of marital foreplay and sex, and also about the intensely complicated histories and personal baggage and nuanced recognitions of self and other, that a couple brings to those acts. I focused on classical illusions in this poem and have left out one of the key things that's linked to them, the if. The if is an aspect of this poem that I find magical and utterly captivating. It had me at hello. In the opening lines of Kominyaka's poem, the speaker declares, if I'm not Ulysses, I am his dear ruthless half-brother. We readers begin the poem wrong-footed, and uncertain and wondering, which makes incredible emotional sense in a poem about wandering, homecoming, and the reestablishing of intimacy. In her literary craft book called The Art of Intimacy, Stacey Durasmo says the following about the subjunctive's capacity for doubling in poetry and fiction. Quote, if I saw you, if we met, if I had gone through that door, if I had found you, if you were here, 
The if is a wonderful device because it simultaneously alerts the reader that what is to follow did not happen and allows the reader to engage in the narrative as if it were happening. As a grammar, it's an optical illusion that is also potentially quite a powerful tool for summoning up desire and loss simultaneously and causing the reader to experience both states with equal force. Let me see if I can throw that quote in the chat so you've got the text of that. All right, it's missing the italics, but um, there it is for you. Latitudes could be a persona poem written from Ulysses slash Odysseus's perspective, or it could be a regular first person poem about a speaker who is very like Odysseus and is reflecting on the similarities. Someone who is close kin to him, dear and ruthless. How do we decide which kind of speaker this is? Maybe the if tells us that we have to toggle to be prepared to see more than one thing, more than one speaker simultaneously. In the opinion of literary critic Kirkland C. Jones, quote, Kumiyaka's Vietnam War poems rank with the best on that subject. He focuses on the mental horrors of war, the anguish shared by the soldiers, those left at home to keep watch, and other observers, participants, objectors, who are all part of the psychological terrain, end quote. Kominyaka's war poems are also celebrated and noteworthy because they explore issues of race and sex, often unflinchingly. I'm gonna propose an additional if now. What if we read Latitudes as a Vietnam War poem? Even though the poem never mentions or alludes to that particular military conflict, what if we thought about the story it tells as the story of the different, of, a, of the difficult return of a flawed warrior? And also a story about what intimacy looks like and feels like and contains if you are the loyal and long-suffering wife of such a soldier. In addition to being a poem about identity and trying to figure out who you are, as the speaker declares, I wasn't myself, and a poem about time passing and about the struggles in a life and about sex and intimacy, the sound of the, of the bed moving, is the same music as the oars rowing a heavy warship, and a poem about memory and coming to terms with the past, Multiple themes and multiple stories are happening at once, I think, enabled by the if and the poem's illusions. This is not the first time Kumanyaka has taken up this part of Odysseus and Penelope's story. In his 2008 book, War Horses, he has an untitled poem that goes like this. Here the old masters of shock and awe, huddled in the war room, talking iron, fire, and sand, alloy, and nomenclature. Their hearts lag against the bowstring as they dream of Odysseus's bed. But to shoot an arrow through the bullseye of 12 axes lined up in a row is to sleep with one's eyes open. Yes, of course, there stands lovely Penelope like a trophy, still holding the brass key against her breast. How did the evening star fall into that room? Lost between plot and loot, the plump string turns into a lyre humming praises and curses to the unborn. In this earlier poem about the tests by which long-standing, long-suffering spouses recognize each other and earn back each other's companionship, is it the bowstring in the first stanza that gets plucked in the second stanza and turns into a lyre, into the poem's fraught music? This poem points to a different test of homecoming, the archery competition wherein Odysseus defeats his wife's mob of unwanted layabout suitors. But I think the big question Komenyaka keeps asking 
in this poem and implicitly in Latitudes is about the mystery of it all. How did the evening star fall into that room? Now I wanna to turn to the poem I shared with you by Rowan Ricardo Phillips titled Even Homer Nods. His poem states outright at the end what my poem Dear Ilium implies, that the classics are essential for making sense of contemporary black life and for opposing anti-blackness effectively, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, before I put Phillips's poem in the air, I'm gonna give you some quick backstory about how it fits into his book as a whole and how it's linked thematically to other poems from Organic Weapon, the part that's the poetic trilogy it's part of, because doing that will help make sense of the way the explicit and subtle references to Homeric poetry connect. The poem, Even Homer Nods, is from Phillips's third book of poems. Um, in a three book cycle, each volume of which corresponds to a book in Dante's Divine Comedy. The ground is linked to the Purgatorio, heaven is linked to the Paradiso, and this third book, Organic Weapon, is linked to the Inferno. Another important thing to say is that the poem cycle is deeply connected to the classics writ large. Um, its interlocutors are from ancient Greece and Rome, medieval and Renaissance Europe, Enlightenment America, and even later American writers such as T.S. Eliot. It's not just about Dante references, as the title of Phillips's poem, Even Homer Nods, makes clear. Even Homer Nods begins at a different point of Homer's story, the time before the battles of the Trojan War. The opening lines of Phillips's poem are a hypothetical that the poem speaker asks us to entertain. And that hypothetical takes us back to Thetis, Athena, Achilles' mother, leveraging her Olympian connections to get magical armor for her son, made by the smith god Hephaestus in order to protect Achilles in the battles that lay ahead. In the poem's last 12 lines, we learn how the story of Thetis and Achilles connects to the poem's speaker. Phillips announces that their story is analogous to what he and his mother did and experienced. So here is this poem. Even Homer nods. You can be a mother who knows a God and you can ask him for magic armor a shield the width of Saturn's wildest rings, some helmet in the new or ancient style, fill your arms with defenses for your child. Take the peacock feather you've been offered and plant it in that helmet's crown or keep it for yourself to use as a pen. Note, this was the only option you were offered, stylist or witness, witness, with stylus, so that you'd circle down the drain with death, mourning in either silence or sound bites, surrounded by silence and sound bites. Life like this having been polished to shine in the normal ways things shine these days. A dull lull, the type of insufficient glare we used to call out on sight as useless glow, but now in new darkness we feel a need for a consolation of presence. As when my mother passed me the soft shield, the breastplate like rice paper, the helmet bright as pyrite can be, we already knew that this was part of the old cycle, that I would die soon without a weapon and she'd live on and we do this again 
and again and again. Without ever knowing we were the weapons ourselves, stronger than steel, story, and hydrogen. Here, in America, where we wonder still, after everything that's happened, why anyone bothers to read the classics. In Organic Weapon, the backdrop of Ethan Homer nods is the ubiquitous threat of anti-Black violence, particularly fatal violence committed by the police. The bluntest exemplar of that overarching concern comes 12 pages before in a two-line poem called Tradition and the Individual Talent. That tiny response poem riffs on T.S. Eliot's famous essay about negative capability and poetry, and also his hapless poetic hero, J. Alfred Prufrock. Phillips's response poem reads in its entirety, quote, I wandered through each chartered street till I was shot by police, end quote. The war in even Homer nods from which the speaker's mother tries to protect her son is anti-Black racism, racial prejudice, and racial violence. And like Thetis, she is doomed to fail in her attempts to keep her son safe. And not just her, in even Homer nods, all the iterations or incarnations of the two of them across the generations know that these efforts are futile, and yet they try anyway. Let's think about the poem's title for a moment, because I think it reflects back on the inevitable failures of mothers in this poem. Even Homer nods. Conventionally, the expression means even the greatest among us fails sometimes. Even the most talented and most creative are not perfect. In the poem, the mother, the creator has two options, stylist or, wit stylist or witness, witness with stylus. From the armloads of ineffective defenses she assembles for her child, a mother might take a peacock feather to ornament his helmet or keep it for herself to use as a pen. Again, a seemingly meaningless choice because the lack of better options means that she will, quote, circle down the drain with death, end quote, in the mundane normalcy of violence and the dull lull of mourning in either silence or sound bites. Phillips's poem begins with a long string of suppositions that detail things Thetis and his poetic speaker's own mother did to try to keep their sons safe from violence. This list gestures to the unstated backstory. Thetis did much more than this to try to keep Achilles safe. The armor is only the latest of her efforts. When he was an infant, she dipped him into a magical stream to try to make him invincible. As a result, the only location where he's physically vulnerable is the spot on his heel where she held onto him in the water. Hence the expression Achilles heel, referring to the one weakness in an otherwise exceptionally strong or fortified position. In Phillips's poem, the first tragedy is what happened to Thetis and Achilles. The second tragedy is the fact that the same thing will happen to the speaker and his mother. The third tragedy is the fact that seemingly countless iterations of weaponless sons will be killed and their mothers will be left alone to grieve, lamenting the fact that the only armor they could provide their children were soft costumes, thin like rice paper. And these tragedies are compounded by the final irony, the fact that those sons never knew that, quote, we were the weapons ourselves, stronger than steel, story, and hydrogen, end quote. Why don't the sons know this about themselves? Because they were never taught the story of Thetis and Achilles. Unlike in Komenyaka's poem, poem Latitudes, um, which turns even more inward at the end to the intimacy of the bedroom, Phillips's poem turns public and outward. 
The speaker reflects on the irony of living and dying in a country where such ancient stories are neglected and maligned as useless, despite the pileup of evidence pointing to their utility. The final words of the poem state, quote, here in America where we wonder, still after everything that's happened, why anyone bothers to read the classics, end quote. The private working title of my paper is A Mother Who Knows a God, because I share this poem's frustration. I believe we need these stories. We need some of them desperately. In the world of Phillips's poem and in the world of myth, simply knowing a God isn't the thing that saves your child. But knowing about the gods, the stories about them, is a way to know something important about ourselves and our collective struggles in and across time, and about the pathos, dignity, and potential that human suffering might contain, about and about what it all might mean. The big claim undergirding my talk is that there are parts of the past that we share, and not always because we lived them or lived adjacent to them, but because the tales of those lives become part of our deepest intellectual and creative selves. They become part of our language of self and part of the way we link our present to a shared human past. In the words of Bob Marley, in this great future, you can't forget your past, so dry your tears, I say. And in the words of the notorious B.I.G., if you don't know, now you know. Here's to the reverb of the literary past and the present. Um, thank you all for showing up for this talk and thank you for listening. <laughs>